and welcome again. My name is Jason Barnard and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. That was Jimmy Webb and Galveston because I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Jimmy onto the Strange Brew to talk about his forthcoming tour here in England and Ireland as well as some of those amazing stories behind what are the most amazing body of songwriting in uh, music history really. So let's hear my podcast with Jimmy. Hello there, Jason. Hi, Jimmy. It's uh, Jason. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, no, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for helping me with my tour and everything. I really appreciate it. So you've got 10 dates coming up uh, over in England and Ireland. Would it be right to say you're a a bit of an Anglophile? Well, uh, I am. I spent years there. If If you add up the time that I've spent there, it's years now. and I. I was there when I was 19 years old, and and I sort of came of age. London's really my second mother, you know. Um, Anglophile is a very, you know, almost a pejorative word, but I I wouldn't take offense at being called an Anglophile. uh, I'm a big fan of most English things, and I sort of suffer like when they when they do things like when they were when they were going to go off of the pound i went into deep depression you know and when they when they changed the bobby's hats to to sort of look like nazi helmets i went into a depression anytime anything gets changed i get upset yeah ever since the 60s and today your appeal has been cross generational is it because you in terms of your songwriting and style you've drawn from that great american song but also mixed it up with more contemporary rock well my albums were rock and roll albums a lot of people don't know that because you know they haven't really sold very well over the years hmm. but i went into the business you know seeking to make to form some sort of a rock and roll band. And, you know, my career with Glenn Campbell sort of um, blossomed into a huge, you know, a sequoia tree of enormous proportions. So I sort of had to put that in perspective and take advantage of the opportunities that were offered me. And so I found myself working with Mr. Sinatra and Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, I I got a a plum job working with the Fifth Dimension, the former Versatiles, but the Fifth Dimension, Mm. which were really a band, a group of singers that had come over from Motown. Motown was my first gig. I I was a staff writer at Motown. It was sort of finishing school for me. I wanted to rock and roll, but there was the constant pull of this golden age of American songwriting and the the fact that I could write those kinds of songs. So, you know, uh, Mr. Sinatra became a, a friend and a, and a uh, proponent and, you know, would, it would give me a, a shout out on, on a live album or something like that. And, and just inexorably, I became associated with that older generation. And I sort of watched it happen and, you know, uh, I was I went to the Monterey Pop Festival. I you know played with the Wrecking Crew and Johnny Rivers and and wanted to make rock and roll, but uh, I found myself kind of living another life. And you mentioned Johnny Rivers, and many people won't necessarily know that 
Johnny recorded the original version of By the Time I Get to Phoenix. So he was a pivotal figure for you in the early years. He was very, very important. He actually played By the Time I Get to Phoenix for Glenn Campbell. Yeah. He had an interest in Glenn. They had done an album together called The Long Black Veil on Mercury Records. And Johnny never forgot anybody. He never forgot a friendship and always followed Glenn and felt that Glenn only needed the right song. And uh, Johnny was an important artist at that point in his career. He had been entertainer of the year for four years in a row in the United States. And he was covering Motown tunes. Yeah. And that sort of got him in trouble with the rock establishment. He's still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, which is a, is a scandal as far as I'm concerned, because he was a rock and roll musician. He was a very successful one, but he, he was sort of a, some people felt that he was tainted by the fact that he had covered all these Motown records. But he was getting number one records with Tracks of My Tears, that Smokey Robinson song, and Baby, I Need Your Loving. You know, he covered them all and and got close to number one records with them. By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. Find the note that I left hanging on her door. She laughs when she reads the part that says I'm leaving. Cause I've left that girl so many times before. Time I make Albuquerque, she'll be working. She'll probably stop at lunch and give me a call. But she'll hear that empty phone keep on ringing.
so it was a bit later that Glenn recorded his own version. It was a bit later, but it was really only seconds in, in the life of the 60s. And I, I, w- I was a second half guy. Anyway, I graduated high school in 64. So it was, it was only the second half of the 60s that I, where I was active. And in 1967, I had two powerful records i was i was lucky enough to have two records on the chart at the same time and one of them was up up and away by the fifth dimension and the other one was by the time i get to phoenix by glenn campbell and they both won grammy awards i mean in 1968 because the awards are always a year later uh, in 1968 we won 13 grammy awards that night between us Glenn and the fifth dimension. So I went from complete obscurity to being fairly well known, at least in the industry. And I mean, a second, it it, it seems like looking back on it, it was so quick that, um, you know, there's no doubt that it was, it was heady stuff. And it, I probably got out over my skis, you know, I I probably began to believe some of the press that I was reading. Hmm. I think it's very hard not to when you're young and you're, you know, that's what you want to hear. You want to hear that you're great, and uh, but you can't start believing that stuff too much. Whereas Glenn, it was almost a cover by the time I get to Phoenix for Glenn. You actually wrote Wichita Lyman for him. I did. It's one of the few times I ever wrote a song for anybody, to tell you the truth, because I am not great at writing that song for that person. I've tried it. Mm. I've tried it different ways. I've co-written with people like Keith Urban, who I love. And um, I'm just not very good at it. Uh, I have to admit uh, that my Achilles heel is actually writing songs for other people. I write them for me. And then it's kind of like a, it's kind of like the, uh, of the flea market. I put them out. I take them out of my, the trunk of my car and put them out on the table and, and as people browse (laughs) and say, Oh, I think I, maybe I could do that one. It's been very catch as catch can and has worked out remarkably well, considering that I just have no, I have no motivation in terms of saying, Oh, I'm going to get that Trisha Yearwood record. I'm going to, I'm going to write, I got, I got to get that. I'm just not motivated that way because I'm not very good at it. It won't, it's not going to work. She's not going to record it. (laughs) So the arrangement of which to Lyman Glenn's version, how much of say the Morse code, for example, was in your original demo? Well, actually the, the arrangements were done by Al Delore, who, who is, is kind of an overlooked figure in the the Glenn Campbell equation, because he really developed a kind of minimalist string writing that was way ahead of its time. It kind of, it was kind of along the Paul Buckmaster line of uh, less is more. And it really cleared the field for Glenn's voice, which was the star. I mean, of those records and Al Al didn't write any, I don't think he wrote any deliberate Morse code stuff, but I had an organ at home, uh, a good, an old Gould Branson uh, that had a bunch of pipe stops on it and had different things. And one section was like 
to be trendy. It had all the new uh, sustained sounds and electronic sounds. There was one sound on there. It was very repetitive, like, but it was, it was like in deep echo, deep uh, sustain. And you could move. You just put your finger down on the key and it went da 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 And if you, that, that's the sound that, that's famous on um, Wichita Lineman at, uh, over the very fade. And we took that organ out of my house. SIR came over and picked it up, drove it down to Western 3 to the studio because we weren't sampling or anything like that. We were years from that. And uh, I just played a two note figure where I moved the uh, an F and a C. I moved the fourth interval up to the fifth interval, yeah. up to the fourth interval, back to the up and down like that with those same notes. And it came out sort of sounding like a satellite. Uh. And like you would think something would, I guess if you were watching a Japanese, you know, horror movie, you might hear something like that, but it worked well. And, um, oh, it worked extremely well. I mean, it was a stroke of, pure luck i'm not gonna say brilliance but it did it kind of i think it influenced the popularity of that record immensely it was just a nice little touch just shows you sometimes that it can be a detail that affects the overall outcome I'm a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine and the Wichita lineman is still on the line. I know I need a small vacation, but it don't look like rain. And if it snows, that stretch down south won't ever stand the strain. And I need you more than won't you. And I want you for all time. And the Wichita lineman is still on the line. And I need you more than want you And I want you for all time 
and the Wichita lineman is still on the And your songs have been recorded by so many different types of artists um, and they work so well. And soon after that, you collaborated with Richard Harris, which in retrospect seems such a, a left field choice, but it works so well. How did that come about? Well, at the time, at the time, it wasn't such such an odd choice because I had just seen Richard in Camelot and he sung the the Arthur part of the Lerner low score to Camelot extremely well. Yeah. And that movie was very successful and uh, it was all his voice. And so I thought, well, the guy can sing, you know, I mean, he sounded great on the movie. When I got in the studio with him, I realized that he really, that wasn't really his forte. And, and, you know, we put a lot of work in, and, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, we did a lot of takes and we did some editing, you know, it, it, it became a, a task to really get what we wanted, but, uh, he was wonderfully cooperative and good sport about the whole thing. We would, I was staying in his apartment in London in the Chesham place. And, uh, we would go to a studio called Lansdowne Road. He had a Phantom Five then, so we'd take his Phantom Five and a picture of Pims to the studio, and we would start working, you know, around seven or so, and we would work until the Pims was gone. <laughs> as soon as the picture was empty, the session was over, and then from there it was like to the White Star for Black Velvets, and then it was Brandy in front of the fireplace. You know, look, I was relatively innocent. I was a Baptist preacher's son, and Richard Harris set out to straighten that out immediately. He introduced me to the dark side of the force, let's say. Again, oh no, 
I recall the yellow cotton dress Foaming like a wave On the ground around your knees The birds like tender babies In your hands And the old men playing checkers By the trees Like this park is melting in the dark All the sweet green ice flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have the recipe
office clock is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have that recipe It's amazing to think that on the single of that, on the flip, was uh, Didn't We, which came to much greater prominence um, soon after. Do you think it was Frank Sinatra recording that that really lifted that song? I think that there were two records that really gave it a push, and certainly Mr. Sinatra's uh, record. I'm I'm really not being, uh, I hope it don't sound too affected, but I always called him Mr. Sinatra because when I met him, I was... 19, you know, going on 20 yeah. years old. And he was clearly my senior. And I, I had been taught in a very strict household to how to refer to my seniors. And I called him Mr. Sinatra. So I still do that. I just, I just do it. I'm not trying to make any sort of show of it. But uh, I feel that his recording of Didn't We and, and, and a shout out that he did to me on his live album. Now, here's a great song by Jimmy Webb, he said, before before he uh, sang, didn't we, on a live album, you know, mm. wow. And then uh, Barbara Streisand, who, you know, that song sounded as though she, it could have been written for her. So there were two very high-profile high people putting it, putting it in the same category with some of the, you know, great songs of the Great American Songbook. And this was something that, again, is nudging me towards a whole other world of music, which is not the world that I really want to be involved with. I want to be involved with people my age. I want drums. I want guitars. Uh, I want to sing about sex. I want to, you know, I want a revolution. I want to be a member of my generation. And uh, I'm a liberal leftist not to put too fine a point on it and and i remain so and um i found in in that these artists certainly glenn yeah and then mr sinatra went over to the republican party he had a row with uh, jfk because jfk wouldn't stay at his house in palm springs so Mr. Sinatra got mad about that and and uh, moved to the Republican Party. So here I am hanging with a lot of very, very important people who are Republican. And things began to get tangled up a little bit. And it was like, no, 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 no. I'm not for the war in Vietnam. You know, I'm not uh, supporting that. I'm not, you know... Um, I'm going to the Monterey Pop Festival. My my hair's longer than John Lennon's. You know, I you know I I want to do a solo album. I want to stand on my own two feet and so on and so forth. So this is this is this is pulling at me, and in a way, it's it's deleterious. It's 
it's not helping either aspect of my career because it's two entities that are kind of warring against each other. And it's not helping me overall to become a household name, let's say, and an identifiable product. Well, I look back on that now and I think, well, I never wanted to be a product. I, I'm, I'm sort of glad it worked the way it did because I had my own road to traverse. I had a, a direction that was peculiar and it was mine. And I cherish that now. I look back and I say, gee, I had an opportunity to hang out with these people and talk to Louis Armstrong backstage, you know, in Vegas. And they were all good people. And Sammy Davis Jr. was a lovely guy. And I knew him and went to dinner with him. And my God, you know, I, I how could I regret being given the opportunity to meet all these wonderful people? And um, yet on the other side of it, I felt a little bit shunned by members of my own generation until Artie Garfunkel came along. He began to record my songs. And then Linda Ronstadt began to record my songs. And uh, I started making some headway with my peer group, which felt awfully good after that long kind of sabbatical with, with a more traditional crowd. This is Jimmy Webb in one of his very quiet, nice moments. This time we nearly made the pieces fit Didn't we, girl? This time we nearly made a go of it Didn't we, girl? This time, I held the answer right here in my hand Then I touched it And it had turned to sand This time, we almost Sang our song in tune Didn't we, girl? This time we nearly made it to the moon. Didn't we, girl? This time we almost, almost made our poem rhyme. And this time we almost made that long hard climb Didn't we almost make it this time In terms of your solo material, there's gems on there like a simile, 
And uh, that was that inspired by Joni Mitchell because the style of that song has got a similar feel. Well, I wrote it for her. There's a story. Um, she had a house up in Laurel Canyon, and she had it for years and years and years and years. And um, I lived in Laurel Canyon, as a matter of fact, but I never saw her. I never saw any of those people who lived there. But I lived there, and I shopped at the Canyon store and all that. But they don't come to me when they make the documentary. Nobody knows I was there. But I'm I'm sort of used to that sort of thing. But I was in Topanga. I, I was in Laurel Canyon and Topanga Canyon. But... Uh, I was kind of crazy about Joni, and when I first saw her at the Troubadour, I wrote her a letter. I sent roses to the dressing room, and I wrote her a letter, asked her to go to tea with me, and sort of waited for a couple of weeks for a response, thinking, oh, well, she she probably thinks I'm I'm a Republican, and she, you know, she thinks I'm, I run with, you know, the Rat Pack up in Vegas and all this and uh, eventually I put it out of my mind, but I, I'm telling you, like, seriously, I was going to date her. There was no question about that. And uh, I had a, a certain charm about me, so I, I wasn't, I, I was pretty sure I was going to date her. And um, there was never any response. And years and years later, I finally got to know her in a friendly way for, uh, well, I say personal to my involvement with David Geffen, who handled her. And we came together quite naturally and became friends. And she sang on a couple of my records. And I heard Court and Spark before it was ever on record. I used I used her engineer, Henry Louis. I introduced her to Tom Scott. We were pretty close. And um, one day she said to me, she said, you know, I was cleaning out my house up in Laurel Canyon the other day. And she said, I'm finally getting rid of it. And she said, uh, I moved the couch. And she said, I found a letter from you. (laughs) And I said, oh, my. And I said, did you read it? And she said, yes. She said, would you still like to go to tea? (laughs) And this this was a decade later. You know, it was like. So, you know, I, I wrote the song and I said, this is the this is the answer to the le- letter unsent that even so arrived some years later uh, is the first line. And um, like a song sometimes written for love long before it is alive. And it was, uh, I think, very much a Joni Mitchell song. And and I have to say in the same breath that she she affected my writing probably more than any other writer. Mm. So more than and then. Well, as much as Lennon and McCartney, as much as Burt Bacharach and Hal David, two, two tremendous influences on me, and Joni Mitchell would be pretty close to the top of what I valued in songwriting, what I saw as important, and what I saw what I saw as process, uh, because I had a chance to look over her shoulders. She was very generous with me. And she played some of the songs from those those albums, Blue, and some of those albums. She played those songs before they were finished. She was constantly working on them, constantly updating them. I was the kind of a guy where I would I would just write the song, you know, and send it out. I never, you know, rewrote much of anything. And uh, 
here I would see I would see page after page where she's, you know, re rewritten, you know, something like uh, a case of you, you know, she's rewritten it like four or five times. And I'm going, ah, that's that's way beyond what I'm you know, what I've been willing to commit. I mean, she's really committed. You know, she's working. And uh, I think it stiffened my spine a little bit. And it got me to thinking about more interesting lyrics, conversational lyrics, not so much the wine and roses kind of lyrics that I sort of grew up on, but a more edgy sound, which I took straight to my own records, which, of course, were largely unheard. So, But every once in a while, I would get one of those songs recorded. You know, one of them would pop through, like Highwaymen. Recorded by Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson. So, um, yeah, I owe her a lot from that, from just just from her willingness to share her process with me. Describe 
You mentioned the Highwaymen, but in that period, you worked with George Martin and such a rich vein of songwriting in that era. You've got The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And was it a case of if you're recording with George Martin, you've got to bring some really good stuff to him to record? Was it like that? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I think it's a case of, well, first of all, I, I have to pinch myself uh, several times because he's agreed to do this record with me. And then secondly, what the hell am I going to bring to George Martin? I, I think it, it was it was it was a challenge because I don't think that you walk in with any just any old ditty you know scribbled on the back of a you know an envelope. Hmm. He had earned immense respect, and I uh, I I came to know him as one of the great gentlemen of all time. He was. He was, like it or not, he was British nobility. He was a knight. He was uh, the epitome of what you fantasize an English gentleman might be like in, in his finest form, with, with a very, very kind and gentle disposition, completely helpful, completely supportive, given to bouts of, of of just ridiculous laughter and and fun and in the studio i remember we we were having a paper airplane contest hmm. in a very very long haul at western quarters and we would have to precisely the plane had to fly down the hallway in a straight line and we we were seeing who could get the furthest hmm. and one one night he came into the studio with his 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 new ship and he had painstakingly created a small sailplane out of paper. And it was an exact replica of like a Slingsby, you know, sailplane from the London Gliding Club. And uh, it flew like an angel. It flew all the way from one end of that corridor to the other end and landed perfect. And I said, okay, this, this contest is over. And we both had a great laugh. And he was he was a second father to me. Yeah. And uh, I, I treasured every moment with him. And I, I feel that I was able to bring in some fairly good songs. But my feeling about that album has always been that I sort of let George down a bit because I was too far into the cocaine. And the cocaine was... It was it was affecting my singing, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I go back and I listen to it and I go, shit, I had to be on that stupid drug because here I am with with George Martin. You know, why spoil it? Why spoil it? The moon. 
But, uh, you know, the El Mirage came off, you know, very well, I thought. And uh, I learned a tremendous, tremendous amount from him. I thought we had some good songs on there. He, ha- he said, you have to write a happy song. So I wrote Sugar Bird. And he, he told me about these, uh, these birds that they had down in Jamaica, the little, little birds who come to your window looking for sugar. and. Um, I thought, well, that's sweet. That's about, that's his, you know, I'm just going to borrow that because I don't ever think about anything like that. <laughs> so I wrote Sugar Bird and it did seem to help the album very much. But I, I thought that there was, he had a great, we, we put Highwayman on there and there's a fantastic George Martin arrangement where he just kicked out the jams and, and did all the sound effects of the, sh- the ship and the dam and everything is, is 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 really vividly ensconced in the in, in in the arrangement, the instruments, the ship's bell. It's it's all there. It was very very reminiscent of Sergeant Pepper. So I you know it overall what one of the greatest experiences of my life. But I remember him saying to me, Jimmy, why do you want to do this? This it's this is too hard. He said, he said, maybe you will be able to do this, but he says, it's really hard. It's, it's a, a very, um, uh, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's an unforgiving landscape, he said. And people don't like for people to change roles. Hmm. They don't want television stars to be film stars. They resist that. You, there's tremendous resistance to you being an artist. And he was so right. I mean, I felt it. You know, it was like walking through molasses. And I was no Paul McCartney. I didn't sing that well. But I certainly sang as well as 
a lot of other people. But I ran into a lot of resistance that, I, that, frankly, I think it was uncalled for. But I'm not, I'm not complaining at this stage. I, I loved my life. I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it. And uh, I wouldn't trade it for anybody's. That's a great way to end. And I guess some of these stories and, and many of these songs will feature in An Evening with Jimmy Webb. I wish you all the best with the tour over here in England and Ireland. So thank you so much. Well, Jason, I thank you very much. And you have no idea how eagerly I anticipate being there <laughs> and, and reconnecting with you wonderful people. God bless. I look forward to seeing you. All right. Bye-bye. I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side And many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade And many a soldier left his lifeblood on my blade Finally hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I was a sailor And I was born upon the tide And with the sea I did abide I sailed a schooner around the Horn to Mexico I went aloft to furl the mainsail in a blue And when the yards broke off they say that I got killed I'm living still I was a dam builder across the river deep and wide Where steel and water did collide A place called Boulder on the wild Colorado I slipped and fell into the wet concrete below Still around It all goes round and 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 round I'll fly a starship across the universe and when I reach the other side I'll find the place to rest my spirit if I can Perhaps I may become the highwayman again Or I may simply be a single drop of rain 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.